Good morning, Free City Church, or perhaps good evening, whenever you might be listening to it. This is uh, when you would say good morning back, but you're not here. I'm all alone in our little office talking to my computer screen um, in circumstances that are different for all of us. Uh, The past several days have been weird, to say the least. We're all familiar with new words and phrases such as COVID-19, flatten the curve, and social distancing. And you introverts thought that just meant your preferred status. At the beginning of the week, many of us mocked the hysteria of people who brought all, bought all the toilet paper in all the stores. It confused many of us, uh, knowing that the COVID-19 virus is not a gastrointestinal virus meaning it doesn't require more toilet paper as other viruses might. But as the weekend folded, we started, we started our own hunt for toilet paper. After checking a few places and coming up paperless, I remember Kinsey called me and said that she heard that toilet paper was at Target, hidden among the construction, and that I needed to go, so I went. I don't know how she heard it. The way she said it made me think that it came from like the beat on the street. Like moms creeping low in their minivans on the west side. She probably Googled it, but the urgency was in her voice and it was startling. So I felt that I needed to go now. I envisioned myself meeting an employee in the back alley where I had to trade Purell for toilet paper. Purell, another commodity that you cannot find. At least we couldn't find it at Dillon's, Walmart. CBS, Walgreens, Home Depot, or Menards. They're all out. Your church staff can personally attest to that. Why? Because our midweek plan was to have church and equip greeters with hand sanitizer and what's up head nods in place of handshakes and bro hugs. That plan held out for a few hours. So much has changed so quickly. I have moved from Why is everyone else freaking out on something as little worse than a flu to almost like a hide-your-kids, hide-your-wife mentality? There are opposite opinions as to what is really going on, and I implore you to avoid two opposite errors in a time like this, to avoid hysteria and denial. First, to avoid hysteria. Other people are not your enemy. Do not see them as the cute little monkey from the movie Outbreak, bringing certain disease and impending death. They are your brothers and sisters, and they need you, and you need them. Some of you, and some more than others. Don't allow yourself to cause more harm. In crisis, there's a danger that first responders call as the secondary crisis. Oftentimes, people's fear and rash decisions can make more harm than the actual crisis did. Breathe, remember, and act. First, breathe. If you don't breathe, you can't think clearly. Just breathe. Second, remember. Remember that our loving Savior is the God of all creation, that He is in all and through all and holds all things together. Just remember, Jesus is still in charge. Remember that this Jesus is the one who sits on the right-hand side of God the Father and prays for you. Jesus sees us. Jesus hears us. Jesus is praying for us. And it's Jesus. He knows how to pray. And remember, 
that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus. Listen to what Romans 8 says about the certainty and permanence of God's love for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I didn't mention it directly or it didn't mention it directly but I'm sure that the coronavirus is included in that list. Breathe. Remember. An act. If all of the promises of the Bible are true, how should we act? I think we should act wisely and with precaution, but we shouldn't be driven by fear. Romans 8, 31 and 32, it says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As you might be able to put together, I've been meditating on Romans 8 a little. But think about that. If God didn't withhold Jesus from your sin problem, what do you think he's going to withhold from you now? That thought, that belief, will cause you to act differently. The first thing that we need to avoid is hysteria. The second thing we need to avoid is denial. I I just don't think the NBA, the NCAA, and all the other thousands of organizations that have been emailing me constantly are into losing money for no reason. I mean, goodness gracious, my online banking contacted me to tell me they were thinking of my safety. Like, I only bank with them online. I, I, I didn't know what else they could tell me other than just to Clorox wipe my keyboard. That is serious precaution. This is what I think. I think that they like profit. And I think that they don't like losing money. I also think that they like their fellow citizens. But I think that they are being cautious because of other countries' recent experiences and cautious because of history. None of them want to be ground zero like the 1918 Liberty Loan Parade in Philadelphia that became ground zero for the death of some 10,000 people with the uncertainty of an influenza virus. I hope we are overreacting. But what if we're not? And and what if the the persistence denial causes the death of someone's grandma or their immune-compromised child? Could you, in your humility, submit to caution with less complaints and less condemnation? This situation is new. As we learn to minister to one another over the next several weeks, we'll be required your patience and your courage and your generosity and your service. Don't isolate yourself from the family of God. You need them and they need you. 
Don't forget that you have neighbors and friends who are facing this without the hope of Jesus. They have fears of death. And without the hope of Jesus, they have questions that are left unanswered. And thirdly, don't miss the opportunity to answer eternal questions about life and death if they ask. When people contemplate their mortality, they need to hear the gospel from you. In the absence of us being able to meet all together in an auditorium, remember that you are the church, the hands and the feet of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. During this time of questioning and uncertainty, I have been greatly ministered to by many of you. Our leaders have worked hard in decisions and thinking of how to equip others for ministry. I've been personally ministered by friends praying for me and even directing me to meditate on this psalm that I want to walk you through. Psalm 91. I want to try to answer one question with this psalm. How do we get peace, real peace in our hearts in a troubling time such as this? We'll look at this under three headings. First, the beautiful promise that we see. It's found in verses one through four. Second, a dangerous misunderstanding that we might pull from it. It's from verses five all the way through verse 13. And then finally, in the fast verses, the real meaning, how we can really understand this. And so, just like if we were together on a Sunday morning, Let's get to work. Verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from that snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And so the first thing that we're going to look at this is the promise. This is saying God is always a safe place to run to. Like like quickly, look at the descriptions of what God is like. God is a shelter, a shadow or a shade, a refuge, a fortress, or a mother bird who covers her young. These are important imageries that describe the great and beautiful promises. God is a shelter. Like, look at that, verse 1. You don't think much about a shelter until there's a serious storm, until the tornado sirens go off, and even then most people go to the porches until they feel the power of the storm. The promise is God is a shelter when your life is being overpowered by forces greater than you. God is shade. It actually says that he's a shadow, but it means that he provides shade when the sun is dangerously hot. If you're having trouble understanding that, it's because you have lots of melanin density. You can tan. You don't have freckles. You don't get more freckles when you get out in the sun. You don't look for shade opportunity at the very first moment when you hit the beach You have never turned inhuman shades of red. I have. The promise is God is a place of relief when the circumstances are too hot to handle. Or, you know, third, it says God is a refuge or a fortress. Look at that in verse 2. 
When things are unsafe, he is safe. The promise? God is strong enough to keep you safe when you feel hunted. You need a refuge. Or will you feel encircled by enemies? You need a fortress. Or fourthly, maybe the most eluding but the most popular image of what this means that God is promising to us that he's a safe place to run is that God is like a mother bird protecting her young. Here in the ESV in verse 4 it says pinions and obviously everyone knows that pinions means feathers, right? Taking shelter under the wings of God is a popular imagery found throughout the Bible. If you were just to search the phrase Shadow of your wings, you would find Psalm 17, 8, Psalms 36, 7, Psalm 57, 1, and Psalm 63, 7, just to name a few. And so this tells us so much. This image is even more beautiful than the others. I mean, a fortress, it sounds hard and cold. Shade. Nothing on the beach that's fun happens in the shade. And shelters are scary. You don't ever think about cleaning them until you need them. And spiders have been living in them in your absence. But right now, can you relate just a little? Few of us often think about the dangers of disease transition. I know there are some germaphobes who think about it often and right now they feel like a biblical prophet and they want to say, I told you so. But don't you just feel a little unsettled? Things that once seemed safe just don't seem nearly as safe. These are pictures of the promise. But look at verse 2 again to see the actual promise, how it works. In verse two, it says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. Now look at this, my God in whom I trust. That is covenant language. It's a promise. If you trust in God, this promise is for you. It is for all who have ever felt endangered or vulnerable. If you trust in God, he is always a safe place to run. He is always secure. His walls never fail. The embrace of Jesus is always strong enough. There's always room under his wing for you. That's the promise of Psalm 91. But there's a danger. Psalms 91 is often misunderstood. We often misunderstood this promise. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 starts to lead us into a dangerous misunderstanding for us. In verse 5, look at, look at what it says it's going to keep us. I mean, this seems to say that nothing bad will ever happen to me if I trust in God. I mean, look, look at the phrases. It says, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Like right there in verses 5 through 6, you see the terror of the night, arrows that fly by day, pestilence that stalk in the darkness, and destruction that wastes at noonday. It seems to be saying day or night, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Or or look at verse 7 through 10. It says, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. 
You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. Verses 7 through 10, it, it seems to say that bad things might happen to other people, but because you trust in God, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. And then it says, no plague shall come near your tent. Trusting God equals no plague. But, but is that true? Do Christians ever get sick? Do Christians ever get sick and die? Do Christians ever need to you know, quarantine themselves and social distance themselves? Do they ever find a situation that they shouldn't meet out of concern for others, even if their church is young and not in danger? But we have to think about our people's people because they have older people that might be in danger or because they might know people with autoimmune difficulties that might be in danger. Or it goes on. The promise even gets kind of unrealistic. Look at verse 11. For it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Verse 12. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. That says that you can walk on snakes and lions and angels who keep you from stubbing your toe. And I have stubbed my toe, and it hurts. I have left bedtime stories and stepped on a lingo on the way out, and I don't know where my angel was in that time. Is this how we're supposed to understand this? Nothing bad can ever happen to me because I trust in God. I, this is not how we're supposed to understand it. Uh, you know, I, I can think of at least a couple of reasons, and, and maybe there's certainly more, of why this can't mean exactly what it seems to say if we stopped right there. But I want to remind you that there's still a verse 14, 15, and 16, which bring clarity. But before we go there, I just want to draw your attention to a few other things. Like the first thing I want to draw your attention to is bad things happen to the people who love God in the Bible. This is true all over the Old Testament and all over the New Testament. Like let me just pull a few. Like think of Job. Lots of bad things happen to Job. Job lost his wealth. Job lost his health. Job lost his family. In his suffering, some of his friends come to tell him that he must have done something wrong for all of this to happen because they were believing just the partial of what like Psalms 91 would say. Like, if you trust in God and run to him as a fortress, nothing bad will happen. They were believing wrong. In the end, if you read to the end of Job, God shows up and says, they are wrong. Psalms 91, the promise of Psalms 91 is beautiful. God is a safe place to run, but it's not telling us that nothing bad happens to the people who love God. I mean, let's go beyond you. Think of Paul. 
Think of Paul. Bad things happened to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He had a thorn in the flesh that people like to argue about what it is. He was whipped, shipwrecked, beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead, left out adrift on the sea for over a day. At times he was hungry, he had sleepless nights, and he was left without proper shelter many times. You you can read about it. He made a list in 2 Corinthians 11. He even added that he suffered from anxiety from the church. And I'm so glad I can at least relate to him about something. Like, he, he, maybe he had to deal with some sort of Corvin 19 cancellation of service deal. Paul suffered. Paul loved Jesus. And Paul had bad things happen to him. Or think of Jesus. Think of the cross. Surely Jesus loved and trusted God the Father. Surely his love and trust was enough, and yet the cross still happened. When we look at Joe, Paul, Jesus, we could also look at Joseph, and we could look at Abraham, and we could look at so many of the other Old Testament characters that loved the Lord, and yet bad things happened. Or we could look at so many of the other apostles and New Testament people, and we see that they loved the Lord, and yet bad things happened. See, the biblical witness won't let you understand Psalms 91 in a way that says, if you love God, nothing bad can happen to you. And we need to hear that because I really believe this. Satan wants you to misunderstand this promise. And I know we live in a university town and what happens often is like, are we really going to talk about Satan? Are we really going to talk about sin and these sort of things? But especially in times of crisis and suffering and uncertainty, Satan wants you to doubt that you are in the stronghold of God. Matter of fact, in Matthew 4, Satan uses Psalms 91, not just Psalms 91, Psalms 91, 11, to try to interfere and trick Jesus. If you, I mean, Psalms 91, 11 is the one that angels will come to keep you from stubbing your toe. And so in Matthew 4, he says, hey, Jesus, doesn't Psalms 91, 11 tell you that you could jump off this tower and your father in heaven would send angels to keep you from stubbing your toe? And do you remember, how does Jesus respond? He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16 and says, don't put God to the test. You know, he quotes Deuteronomy. He's like, hey, Deuteronomy, it trumps Psalms. But what what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Satan, that's not what that means. It doesn't mean that I'm never going to stub my toe. It doesn't mean that I'm never going to get sick. It doesn't mean that I should put God to the test and try to walk over deadly snakes. It means something even greater. Jesus tells us, like the biblical story tells us, that this can't mean nothing bad will ever happen to you. So what does it mean? You see, so far we've, we've looked at the promise and 
God is always a safe place to run. In your time of need, run to Jesus. We've we've looked at a dangerous misunderstanding, and like this can't mean if the biblical witness is true, if experience is true, if even going against what I really want it is to say is true. This can't mean that nothing bad happens to those who trust God. So what what is the real meaning? And, and the real meaning. It's found in, in the greater witness of the scriptures, but it's also found right here in verses 14 through 16. The real meaning is that God will be with you in this moment, this thing. Even COVID-19, the coronavirus, is a part of the saving of your soul. Like, look, look at verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love. Like it just got done saying all of those incredible things. It just got done saying things that are, you know, terrors of nights won't touch you. Arrows that fly by day, they can't hit you. Pestilence that stalks in darkness, you are untouchable. Destruction that could come at noonday, it can't touch you. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague can come near tent. You can't even strike your foot against a stone. You can walk on lions and you can walk on adders. And then it gives this, because he holds fast to me in love. Now look at this. Then it says, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. The promise that we're about to see is for those who know the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord is Jesus. It says this, that those who know the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is Jesus. When he calls, verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble and I will rescue him and honor him. Now just stop for a second. Like, did you see what it said? Like, did you see what it said in verse 15? It said, I will be with him in trouble. That doesn't mean, that, that's different. That, that helps us understand everything. That person faces those troubles and they're not just fully removed from it, but they're never alone in it. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And then verse 16, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And so verse 14, 15, and 16, it points us to something that we can understand, something that we can expect, that if we know the name of the Lord, if we hold fast to him in love, like if we run to God for our protection, that we can find protection. That when we call to God, that he will answer and he will be with us. Did you see it? Verses 5 through 13 seem to say these things can't happen. But then you read verse 15 and it says, When you go through these things and call to me and put your trust in me, I will be with you in the trouble and I will rescue you. And then it even says, honor you. What does that mean? Honor you. 
And then verse 16, it goes on to say, and I will show him my salvation, that after you see God with you in this trouble, and you realize that's the greatest honor ever, then you get to see God's salvation for you. See, I think this points to a greater salvation. There's a salvation that you need that you don't even see yet. Psalms 91 is saying the same thing that Romans 8.28 is saying. And especially the same thing that Romans 8.28 all the way through verse 30 is saying. I told you in thinking about this, I've been meditating on Romans 8, which is one of my favorite books of the chapters of the Bible. And it's a well-known verse, but it's often misunderstood. And yet it is saying the same thing that Psalms 91 is saying. It is declaring the same precious promise that we need to hear even in a moment just like this. Romans 8.28 For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Did you see it? It says all things working together. It doesn't say any one thing. It says that all things, the bad things, alongside with other bad things, alongside the learned things and good things and joy things, all things for those who love God will bring about a good. A good. A good that one day in eternity past, you'll get it. And you'll thank God for doing it. Now, it says even more than that. It, It goes on to talk about how salvation works. The saving of your soul. Look at verse 29. It says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Like, do you see God's planning in this? In Romans 8, he's willing to use bad things for your ultimate good, for the saving of your soul. Like, follow it backwards to see how it works. Start in verse 30. Those who are glorified. Who are glorified? It's those who are justified. That means those who are made whole, who are with God forever, they have to be first made presentable to God first. They have to be justified. We have to be justified to be glorified. And then work it backwards even more. In verse 30, the first part, it says, those who are justified are called. That means that those who are made right before God have to be called first. They have to respond to the gospel call in their lives. They have to be called to be justified, to be made right before God, there's a response. There's a calling that goes out that we respond to. But keep working it backwards. In verses 29 and 30, it says, Those who are called are predestined and known first. The, the, the words are predestined and foreknown 
Like you have to do something with that. And regardless of where you fall in your view of salvation, like regardless, you have to wrestle with those words. But let me tell you what this means and why this is such good news. That means that those who hear the gospel and respond yes are thoughtfully positioned and readied by God to hear it. And we would ask this, how are they readied? Verse 28, all things working together. I'm about to say something that I think the Bible is saying is true, and it might offend many of you. But I just want you, what I want you to ask this question. What if the fear and the uncertainty maybe even the loss and the sickness that you're facing right now? What if those are included in all things? Will you let this moment work together with all the other moments to save your soul? See, there's, a, there's an instant saving that happens in justification that Jesus takes your sin upon himself and you're instantly made a good son and good daughter that never left the family of God. There's an instant saving. But there's also a progressive saving that has to happen where part of my soul is owned by other things. Like I'm still a child of God, but part of my soul is captivated by by worldly things, by by health and by ambition and by you know, you know prosperity and by you know my looks or my my place in this world, like it's owned by those things. And like these kind of things, like these kinds of fears and these kinds of brokenness, they have a way. They have a way of showing themselves to be ridiculous. And I actually, in those moments, with God in suffering, with God in uncertainty, I have a moment to pull more ownership back. And I actually gain more of my soul. Like I, I gain more certainty and more rightness, not believing what this, this text isn't saying, not believing that I'm never going to face adversity or hurt, or not believing that no bad thing will ever happen to me by believing that I am never alone and God will use this moment and all the other moments for the salvation of me, for something good that one day in eternity past, I will look at him and I will say, you were right. You were right. Will you let this moment work together with all the other moments to be more human, to to suffer the right way, to grieve with those who are grieving, to rejoice and to help? Also, will you seek this moment, this moment right now in the lives of others to voice the call of the gospel to them so that verse 28 of Romans 8 might lead to verse 29 and 30 so that this too might work together for the saving of their souls 
so that they too might one day look back at this moment and look at Jesus and say, thank you. You were right. You know, as we look at this, we can answer the questions all contained within Psalms 91. That verse 15, it says, hey, in these things, I will be with you in trouble, but I will rescue you. And then verse 16, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. But how much more so when we see the bigger gospel witness? When we see the Romans 8 of all things working together, and then it instantly goes into the process of salvation that God has been thinking about you from eternity past, and he is orchestrating things in your life right now to bring about these kind of things. A calling. A justifying and a glorifying. Do you know what that means? Have you experienced that? If you are a Christian, and have you experienced being a part of that process for someone? You may have neighbors, and they may be really afraid. Or you may have neighbors and they're really unafraid and they mock what's going on right now. But I just want to ask this. Is it possible that God has positioned you in this time, in this moment, for the saving of your soul that you might reclaim more of your humanity that's been lost? And that God might be placing us in this time to really be the church? Like I said, this will be on realm so you can read it if you want to and we are moving forward with city groups so you can read the text and discuss it together and really just be the church it might be an opportunity for you to bring in some of our city groups where that are larger we're asking them to break up smaller such as mine break up smaller so we can meet in smaller safer uh, settings that we don't just think about our people, but we think about our people's people. Just because we can't meet all together right now doesn't mean that we can't be the church. I love you. And I look forward to soon sing with you again and hear you sing proclamations of the goodness of Jesus and how he's better. I anticipate that coming. Let me pray for us. Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would see everything from your hand as good. I pray that we would learn from Psalms 91 that you are a safe place to run to, but we wouldn't be pulled away. We wouldn't think that this means nothing bad could ever happen, that we'd look to the greater witness, that we would look to what happened to people who love God and the Bible, that we would look to how Jesus tried to derail how Satan tried to derail Jesus by quoting scripture and Jesus looked at him and says, that's not what that means. I also pray that we would see this opportunity for further saving of our soul or for the saving of souls around us. Father, we love you. Help us understand how the gospel works in such a time as this. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Free City Church. I love you more than you know.